So let's talk a little bit about our story. Now, it's a, it's a pretty long chunk that we're looking at today. So if you've got your Bibles, would you please open up to Genesis chapter 40. And please follow along as we, as we go through it verse by verse. Here's the situation as we begin chapter 40. Joseph is in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. Joseph was framed. He was lied about. He was slandered. He was dragged through the dirt. His name was you know, slandered. He has now been wrongfully imprisoned. Joseph really, though, you know, he is one of only a handful of guys in the Bible of whom we don't read that he was in, like, major sin. You know, he didn't murder anybody, he didn't commit adultery, you know, he didn't, you know, kill the president or something, you know. He, he's just this guy who lived a holy, godly life. He walked with God all the days of his life. But that's why it's interesting, because in spite of that fact, rather than having a life of ease and comfort, his life up until this point is characterized by difficulty and suffering. Now that's very important for us to see because that's surprising for many people. Some people, I would say even many people, they have this kind of expectation that the way it works with God is that if you scratch his back, then he'll scratch your back, right? It's a little bit of give and take. And, and you know, if, if you do God a favor, if you throw him a bone and you don't break any of his rules and you show up at church every now and then, and, and you give some money to charity, and, and you pray before your meals, then God's going to see that, and He's going to pull some strings for you. He's going to make some stuff happen in your favor, right? He's going to make sure you have a good life, and you pass all your exams in school, and you get that raise that you want at work, and uh, He's going to protect you, you and your family from bad things happening to you. That is not what happens to Joseph, is it? Right? Joseph obeys God. Joseph lives a holy, godly life. And what happens to him? He gets sold into slavery by his own brothers. And it doesn't just stop there. Joseph, he's a slave, and he works so hard as a slave that he gets promoted to head slave. That's, that shows a lot of character if you like work hard as a slave. You know, some of you are like, man, I feel like a slave. Yeah? But do you get paid? Because Joseph didn't get you're like, well, I don't get paid enough. Well, but think about this. Do you get a health benefit? You know what Joseph's health benefit was? Work, or I hit you with a stick, right? Okay, that's his health benefit. But in spite of that, he has this amazing character, this godly character, that he works hard, even in spite of the fact that his working conditions are not ideal. And things start going good for him. He gets promoted. Even his boss notices that God is with him. But then, just when things start looking up for Joseph, when things start going good again, what happens? He has another problem. He gets into this situation at his boss's house where he works, where his boss's wife starts hitting on him, coming on to him, and asking him to sleep with her. And, and he says no, you know. This is a tough situation for Joseph to be in because he's a young man. He's in his 20s. He has no one around him to encourage him in his walk with the Lord. He has no one to be an accountability partner for him that he can talk to about things. He doesn't have a wife, and this woman is just throwing herself at him and getting everybody out of the house, creating the perfect situation. But Joseph refuses to sleep with her. He says, no, it would be a sin in God's eyes, and my relationship with God is more important to me than a few minutes of pleasure with you. So Joseph refuses to sleep with his boss's wife, but that makes her upset, and she gets vengeful, and she sets Joseph up, and she frames him and says that he tried to rape her. So Joseph, he gets thrown in prison for this crime that he didn't commit. 
He has no family around. He has no one to advocate for him. He became a slave at age 17, and he spends his entire 20s in jail. Your 20s, man, that's when you got all your hair and you're so good looking, right? And then he spends the prime of his life, he spends it in jail. 13 years spent as a slave and in jail. And you know how it describes the jail in the text? As a pit, right? This isn't one of those jails that has like cable TV and a basketball court where you can get a college education and, and you know, uh, get some exercise every day. This is an actual pit, right? That's not a lot of fun. So again, there's this notion that many people have about God, and this story really just blows it out of the water. And the notion is this, that if you will do what God wants, then God will help you to attain your goals, and he'll protect you from bad things happening to But that's not at all what happens to Joseph. Joseph's walking with the Lord, obeying the Lord, and look what happens. He ends up a slave, he loses everything, he ends up in prison in this there's this phrase in the text that's so interesting. I find it so interesting, and I think it's supposed to really stick out to us. Joseph's suffering injustice over and over throughout the text. It says, God was with him. God was with him. In slavery, God was with him. In prison, God is with him. Well, you might ask, well, if God is with him, then why didn't God stop these terrible things from happening to him? Why didn't God save him from that situation? If God was with him, and if Joseph was in the will of God. And isn't that really the kind of questions that people ask so often, right? Well, if God really loves me, then why does he let these bad things happen to me? If God loves me, then, then why doesn't he stop these things from happening to me? Why doesn't he save me from this situation? But that, friends, that is the point of the story. It shows us that, that if we think that God merely exists to give us what we want and make our lives comfortable and protect us from bad things happening to us, then we have totally misunderstood the entire purpose of walking with God. And even more than that, we have completely misunderstood the purpose of our lives. The point of this story, that Joseph, that God is with Joseph in prison, that God is with Joseph in slavery, but not saving him from prison and slavery because there's something much bigger going on here. That's the point. There's something much bigger that God is doing. He's doing something which is much bigger than Joseph's comfort. He's doing something bigger than whatever plans Joseph might have had for his own life before this all happened. God is doing something bigger, and God is going to use Joseph for his purposes. See, here's the thing. God isn't with Joseph so that Joseph can use God for his purposes, but rather Joseph is in this situation by the providence of God so that God can use Joseph for his own purposes. So here's what happens in the story. In chapter 40, Joseph, he's in this pit, right? There's these two other guys who are in prison with him. One is the Pharaoh's cupbearer. This is the guy who would drink Pharaoh's wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. It's kind of a stressful job, I'm guessing. And the other one is the baker, right? Pharaoh's baker. Um, and they both committed some kind of offense against Pharaoh. We don't know what it was, but they got thrown in this pit. One night they both have dreams. And they tell Joseph what the dreams are, and God gives Joseph the interpretation for their dreams. He says, in three days' time, Pharaoh is going to lift up both your heads. But for each of you, that's going to mean something different. For you, cupbearer, lifting up your head means he's going to take you out of the pit and restore you to your job and, and you 
get you out of prison. But for you, Baker, lifting up your head means that you are going to be hanged in three days' time. And that's exactly what happens, exactly as Joseph said it happened. So Joseph tells his cupbearer, you know, as they're taking him out of the pit, he says, hey, remember me. Put in a good word for me to the Pharaoh because I don't really like being in this pit. It'd be nice to get out of here. Now, of course, the cupbearer, once he's back in Pharaoh's palace, he totally forgets about Joseph and about what, he had, what Joseph had done for him and interpreted the dream. Until a few years later, that's where we get to chapter 41. Pharaoh has some dreams that totally freak him out. There's these supermodel-looking cows, and then there's the fat, attractive cows. And you know the story. The, the supermodel cows eat the fat, attractive cows because they're very hungry. And, uh, and they're still skinny. Right? So uh, Pharaoh's freaked out, and, and no one can tell him what this dream means. He calls in all his consultants and his spiritual advisors and his magicians, and no one can interpret this dream for him. Um, so the cupbearer, though, he, he re remembers, hey, I remember that a few years back, there was this guy named Joseph, and when I was in prison, he interpreted a dream for me. So Pharaoh, maybe he can interpret your dream, too. So they, uh, they call for Joseph, they bring him before Pharaoh, they bring him out of the pit, they give him a shave and some new clothes and a bath, probably the first bath he's had in quite some time, and they bring Pharaoh, or they bring Joseph before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, so, I hear that you can interpret dreams, and uh, I have a dream that needs interpreting. And I love what Joseph says to him, check this out, he says, I can't help you, but God can, so let's ask him. Let's seek him out for the answer to your problem. And I love that. I love that attitude. I love that sense of humility. He says, Pharaoh, I'm nobody special. I'm just a normal guy. You don't need me. No, you need is God, right? And I love that because think about this. Joseph has finally gotten an audience with Pharaoh. But rather than talking about himself, rather than promoting himself, he points Pharaoh to God. He says, uh, you know, you need God. He says, I can't help you. I I'm just a, you know, I'm just nobody. He could have easily said, Pharaoh, of course I can help you. I'm the man for the job. I am the best dream interpreter around. And if you would just let me out of prison, then I'd be happy to interpret your dream for you. He also could have used this opportunity to tell Pharaoh about the horrible injustices that he had suffered, how he was wrongly imprisoned. He could have used this opportunity to talk about himself and ask for a pardon. But instead, he doesn't talk about himself. He puts all the attention on God. He focuses Pharaoh on God. He takes this opportunity to tell Pharaoh about God. Isn't that cool? And it's even more profound when you think about it this way. Now, who does Pharaoh think that he is? All you guys have studied Egyptian you know, history and everything. Who did they think that the Pharaoh was? The Pharaoh thinks that he's God. So, so he walks in there, Joseph walks in there to the guy who's, you know, his name tag on his desk says, I'm God. And he says, hey, you know who you need? You need a real God who can answer your questions because obviously there's something that you are not doing well here, right? This would be like if, if they, uh, you know, you get invited into, the, into uh, like Bill Gates' office or Steve Jobs' office and, and they say, well, I've got an issue. Can you help me? And they say, you know what you need? You need somebody who's smart. You know what you need? You need somebody who's smart. Not, not somebody like you, no, somebody who's really smart. You know? The Joseph stands before the most powerful man in the world, 
who thinks that he is God. And he tells him, you know who you need? It's God, right? And so, so Pharaoh tells him the dreams that he's had. And Joseph gives him this interpretation which God reveals to him. He says there are going to be seven years of plenty and then followed by seven years of a devastating famine. Not only does Joseph interpret the dream, but he gives a plan of action about what to do with it and how to save the nation. He says you need to use these seven years of plenty to store up food, as much food as you can. That way your people won't die. And not only that, you'll increase the wealth of your nation, the power of your nation, because people will come from everywhere to buy food here. And he says, you know, Pharaoh, I'd be happy to head that up for you because I kind of know exactly what needs to happen. So what does Pharaoh do? He says, I need this man. I need this man who has the spirit of God and he gives Joseph a job, and he, Joseph heads up this hunger relief uh, program. And during the years of plenty, they, they grow as much food as they can, and during the years of famine, food is so scarce that Joseph really becomes the most important person in Egypt other than Pharaoh, because he's the guy in charge of the food, and everybody needs food. In other words, here's what happens. Joseph just happens to be in the right place at the right time, and he has just the right skills. And it is not at all by chance. It was the plan and purpose of God. This is what we call providence. God put Joseph right where he needed to be, right where he needed to be, right when he needed to be there, and God gave him just the ability that was needed for that situation, because God had a plan and a purpose, and he used Joseph to fulfill In the story of Joseph and the doctrine of the providence of God, it tells us this about our lives. This is what it reveals to us about our lives. That at any given moment, there's a whole lot more going on than what you can see or know. There's a big picture which you can't see when you're in it. You can't see that right now. Someday, you might be able to see it. You might be able to look back and things will make sense. But for now, in your present circumstances, you have no choice but to trust God, trust in His character, right? That He is good, that He is loving, that He is faithful, and that He is working all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's what Joseph did. For 13 years, things were happening to him that just made no sense at all. It didn't seem fair. But Joseph chose to trust in the providence of God. That even though he couldn't see the big picture of why all this was happening to him, he chose to trust that surely God loves me. And surely God has a plan and a purpose for allowing all this to happen. And finally, in chapter 41, you know, many years, many chapters into the story, we finally see what that plan and purpose was. God had placed this man, a believing, godly man, in this place for such a time as this. He had given him these abilities at this time for such a time as this, so that God could bring glory to his name, so that God could bring hundreds of thousands of people, so that God could save hundreds of thousands of lives, including the lives of the family through whom will come Jesus Christ. That's providence. And the reason Joseph is an example for us is because he lived his life in light of the providence of God, with the understanding that God is doing something even if I don't know what that is right now. So today, here's what I want to challenge you to. 
I want to challenge you to live your life in light of this truth, in light of the providence of God. And I want you to see that God has providentially placed you where you are right now, wherever that might be. You're here even now for a purpose. Whatever stage of life you're in, you're there for a purpose right now. And he has given you talents and abilities for such a time as this. So we look at the story of Joseph. I want you to see this also. Your life is not primarily about you. Isn't that so surprising to us in America? It's so countercultural, right? It's not just about you. It's not just about your aspirations. It's about God and His purposes. He has a purpose with you. Do you know that? Or do you really know that? That God has providentially been working in your life since you were born. And He's providentially been working in your life even at this moment, even in the current situation that you're in, in the current circumstance you're in, and He desires to do something both in you and through you, through your life and in your life. You know, a basic biblical understanding that all of us need to have in regard to our lives is this. It's not about you. It's not about you. And, and really, that, that has to be the most countercultural thing that you could say in America today. But really, that's what the Bible says, and it is indeed countercultural, because the message of the Bible is this, that the purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment. The purpose of your life is far greater than your peace of mind, than even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your dreams and aspirations. The Bible tells us that if you want to know what the purpose for your life is, why you were placed on this planet and born where you were, time that you were, you must begin with God. You were born by His purpose and for His purpose. You know, many people try to use God for their own self-actualization, right? But if you do that, you're going to be doomed to frustration and futility because you're getting things backwards. You were made by God and for God, not the other way around, right? And life is about letting God use you for His purposes, not about trying to use God for your purposes. The mistake that, that many people typically make in seeking out the meaning and, and purpose for their lives is that we begin at the wrong starting point. We ask ourselves questions like, what do I want to be? What should I do with my life? What are my goals? What are my ambitions? What are my dreams for my future? But before we start asking those questions, we need to take a step back. We need to put our lives in a proper perspective and recognize that we were in fact made by God. Not only that, but we were made for God, for His purposes. And He has these purposes which are much bigger than just our lives, right? This, this cosmic purpose that He has, that He's designed for all of eternity. Do you know that God is on a mission? That's really the story of the Bible. It's a story of a God who is on a mission. He's on a mission to redeem, to seek and to save that which has been lost and corrupted by sin. He's on a mission to glorify His name. And the amazing thing, the humbling thing, is that you have a role to play in that mission. You can also say this way, that God is writing a story. He's writing a story on the pages of history. The Bible tells us part of that story, the, the most important, significant part, the part about Jesus, 
But God is still writing a story. The story of salvation. The story of redemption of the world. And your life can be part of that story. That's God's desire for you. And the question is this for us. Each of us has to answer this question. Will you join that mission? Will you embrace what God wants to do in your life and through your life? Or will you fight against it stubbornly, insisting that your life is, is really yours to do with it whatever you want, as you please? Now, Jesus said that the irony of life is that anyone who tries to hang on to their life and cling to their life and really you know, not let go of it, that person will ironically end up losing their life. But anyone who lays down their life and embraces what God wants to do in them and through them, that is the person who will find true life. That is the person who will find rich life, abundant life, and eternal life ultimately. But it's only when you, when you stop trying to use God to fulfill your purposes and you realize that your life is about God accomplish His purposes in you and through you. I read this quote this week. It said this, If we stopped spending all our time trying to make ourselves happy, we could actually start having a pretty good time. I think, uh, you know, there's probably a reason that's not in the Bible, but I, I think there's, uh, there's some biblical truth in that idea. Um, you know, let me tell you a story. There once was a man named Saul. Now Saul was a man who resisted the will of God for his life. God had a purpose with Saul's life. There was something that God wanted to do in his life, and there was something that God wanted to do through his life, but Saul was resisting it. He was resisting what God wanted for his life. He, he wanted to keep doing things his way, by his terms. The Bible tells us, interestingly enough, that the Spirit of God it's not in every person. The Spirit of God is only in those who have become believers by being born again through faith in Jesus. But, but it does say that the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of all people in the sense that He is convicting. So Jesus said this, when the Holy Spirit comes, this is what He'll do. He's convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. That means that the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of all people, even your neighbors, even your family members, even those people who you think seem the most opposed to God, they don't want anything to do with them. The Bible says that God's at work in their life too, doing this, whispering in their ear and telling them, you need a Savior. Because God is holy and righteous, and the day is coming when, when judgment will come upon the earth for sin. And hell is hot, and eternity is a really well, this guy Saul, he had the same thing, the Holy Spirit whispering in his ear. And he responded to the call of the Holy Spirit by doing what? By resisting even more. He said, no way am I going to change everything about who I am and what I do to become a follower of Jesus. And instead he went to the opposite extreme. He became a persecutor of Christians. He would, he would go around with this band of hooligans, right? He would terrorize Christians and drag them out of their houses and beat them and even kill some of them. Well, anyway, one day God shows up and he appears to Saul in this vision. And this is what God said to him. He said, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats, isn't it? 
This is not easy for you. You're kicking against the goats. Now, now what a goat is, it's, it's kind of like a cattle prod. It's a stick that was pointing on the end. They would use it to get the cattle, the animals, moving in the direction they wanted them to go. They'd poke them. Now, what would happen is if an animal kicked against this thing, they're kicking against the sharp stick, they're going to hurt themselves even more. And, and that's a picture of what it looks like to resist the will of God for your life. You're kicking against the goats. When you fight against God's will for your life, you think you're preserving your autonomy. You're remaining in control. You're, you're keeping the right to rule your own life and make yourself happy. But what you're really doing is just kicking against the goats. All you're really doing is causing yourself more pain and discomfort. You're making yourself miserable. That's what happened in Saul's life. God shows up and he says, Saul, there's something I want to do in you. And there's something I want to do through you. And Saul says, no. God had a heart-to-heart -heart with Saul at one point, and he said, Saul, aren't you just miserable? You know what I'm trying to get you to do. You know what my will is for your life. Aren't you just tired of resisting me and kicking against the goods? You're so worried about saving your life. You don't want to give your life to me because you're afraid of what you might lose. Well, look at this. You're, you're miserable as it is. You're frustrated. This isn't working, is it? Why don't you just stop kicking against the goats and embrace what I want to do in you and through you? And that's what Saul did that day. He stopped resisting God. And he finally responded to the call of the Holy Spirit and put his faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he let God accomplish his purposes in him. To redeem him, to justify him, to save him from his sins and give him a new life and a relationship with God and the promise of heaven. Not only did God work in Saul's life, but God worked through Saul's life. After Saul became a Christian, his name was changed to Paul, and Paul became one of the first missionaries. He became one of the first church planters. He became the man through whom the gospel came to Europe and changed the course of all of history. Paul was used by God to write more than write about 30% of the New Testament, over well, almost half the books, 13 out of 27 books. God had a plan for his life. There's something he wanted to do in him, and once he had done that in him, there was something he wanted to do through him. And it was only when Paul let go of trying to hold on to his life and surrendered his life to God that his true life actually began. Let me tell you another story. It's the story of a woman. Her name was Esther. She was a teenage girl, really, uh, and her country was attacked by a foreign nation. And the invading army came in and they plundered everything in the country. Not only did they plunder the country and pillage it, but they also took with them the young people and the educated people back with them to their country. Well, this girl, she was one of those who was in exile. And she was young, and she was pretty. And it just so happened through a course of events that she was chosen to be the queen. She was chosen to marry the king of that country. She was not in love with the king. In fact, she didn't even really know the king. She didn't really have a relationship with him. She was just chosen because she was young and pretty. At the same time that this happened, there were some people in this country, within the government of this country, who did not like her people, the Jews. And they came up with this plot to kill all the Jews in Persia. And so news spread that, of this plot to commit this, this genocide, really, this ethnic cleansing against the Jews. 
And one of Esther's relatives, a man named Mordecai, he came to Esther one day and he said, Esther, you need to go and plead our case, the case of the Jews. You need to plead it before the king. You're the only one who he'll listen to. You're the only one who can talk to him because you're the queen. You're the only one who's in that position to talk to him. And he said this. He said, who knows, Esther, that you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai was right. The story of Esther, it's just like the story of Joseph. It's the story of the providence of God. Esther, in, in this, you know, things just kind of happen, right? And she ends up in exile. And all the girls in Persia, she just happens to be the one who's chosen to be the wife of the king. And Esther becomes the queen at just the right time that she's able to save the Jewish nation from genocide. The providence of God means this, that God has a purpose, God has a mission. And like Joseph and like Esther, I want you to see that God has placed you where you are specifically. And he's given you the abilities that you have specifically, the relationships that you have specifically for such a time as this. For such a time as this. That's going to mean something different in each of our lives. Let me tell you one more story. It's my last one. Um, some of you have heard me talk about my daughter, Felicia, right, and, uh, and how when she was born, there's some major complications with her birth, and then she was born practically dead, really. And uh, what happened is this, that morning, we went to the hospital, Rosemary's labor had begun, we got out of the house around 7.40ish, right? Everything seemed fine, we had had a baby before, we kind of knew what to expect, so they take Rosemary into the prep room to prepare her for the birth, and I made me remain out in the hallway. Everything seemed normal, but then after about two minutes, I was texting people and stuff, and after two minutes, all these nurses just come running out of the maternity ward. Just raising, they're yelling, and they're just running all over the place in the hospital. And this one runs past me and just shouts at me and says, there's a problem with the baby, right? And, and all these people, then after that, a minute later, all these people start rushing into the maternity doctors and people carrying all kinds of contraptions and stuff. What happened was that Felicia was asphyxiated um, in the womb. She had been without oxygen for quite some time, and as a result, she suffered brain damage. And after about three hours of not knowing anything, no one would tell me anything, or they weren't allowed to by law, and no one would tell me anything except that it wasn't good. And finally, the doctor called me into her office, and, and she told me that Felicia had gone without oxygen for a really long time, and that she was being kept alive by machines, and she was going to be transported to a special ward in, in Budapest, and, uh, and she said there's a pretty high chance that she's not going to make it, and if she does make it, then we should be prepared, and she'll probably be uh, severely handicapped for the rest of her life. But that doctor had told me one other thing. She said, you know, the only real ray of hope is this, that there's this experimental treatment um, for treating asphyxiated babies like Felicia. Uh, and this is actually really the only thing that could save her life and save her brain from being completely ruined, you know. And, and it just so happened that this doctor who was talking to me, she said, it just so happens that I happen to be training to do this therapy right now, actually, in Budapest at the special ward where they're taking your hospital, your daughter. And I don't actually usually work in this hospital. I just happen, this just happened to be the one day when I'm working here. On top of that, her shift started at 8 o'clock. And we got to the hospital right at 8 o'clock, right as the shift began. Do you, do you see where I'm going with this? 
Uh, the, this doctor just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and she had just the right skills and abilities that were needed to save my daughter's life. And actually, you know what? This is cool. I'm happy about this. This doctor's actually here today. So I'm going to introduce this is Dr. Christine Kovach from Manhattan. just the right place, just the right time, with just the right set of skills, and God used her. And Felicia ended up being treated by, by three or four other doctors, you know, as she went through this long therapy that she went through, and, and God healed her, and what's crazy that every one of the doctors who dealt with her, they told us, you know, what happened to her is nothing short of a miracle. You know, this is a miracle that she is healthy and okay. Felicia turned three years old on Tuesday. Christine has been at every one of her birthday parties. And she flew out here from Hungary to be here for Felicia's birthday. So we're really blessed by that. But for every one of you who's here today, I want you to look at your life and understand that God has you where you are, with the skills that you have, uh, with the relationships that you have for such a time as this. And that's going to mean something different in each of your lives, but I want you to see your life that way. He has providentially been working in your life bringing you to the place where you're at today, wherever that might be for each of you. He's desiring, first of all, to do something in you. Maybe he's brought you to the place where you are today because he wants you to give your life to him. He wants you to come to him and receive forgiveness and grace and eternal life. And if you've done that, then the next thing he wants to do is he wants to do something through you. To fulfill his plans and his purposes and his mission. And I want to challenge you uh, to see your life in this way. You know, your life is not just a culmination of, of random chance happenings. But there's a God who's above all things, and He has brought you where you are today for such a time as this. Your life isn't about you. You were created by God, you were created for God, and you will be utterly frustrated. You will be continually kicking against the goats until you stop resisting God's plan for your life and purpose for your life. It's in dying to yourself that you will find true life in Him, the life that you deeply desire. You know, the question somebody might ask is, well, what does that look like practically? How do I do that practically? Well, the answer to that question is this. What is in your hands? The question that, do you remember that when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush? Moses said, I, I'm nobody. I can't do this. God said, Moses, I've chosen you to do something great. Moses said, I, I can't do this. I'm a nobody. What did God say to him? He said, Moses, What's in your hand? Moses said, well, it's a staff. I just got a stick. He's a shepherd. God said, great. I'll use that. You know what God did with that stick? It's just a stick, right? It's just like a stick that he found out in the wilderness. What does God do? Moses sets that stick on the ground and it becomes a serpent as a sign to Pharaoh. Moses sticks that stick in the river and God makes the Nile River turn into blood. Moses lifts that stick in the air and God uses it to part the Red Sea. Moses hits the rock in the wilderness with that stick and God uses it to provide water for his people to keep them from dying. It was just a stick that he found out in the wilderness. He asked him, Moses, what do you got in your hand? Whatever it is, that's what I'll use. That's good enough for me. Moses began his life in wealth and, and luxury in the house of Pharaoh, but at one point, he lost everything. 
He lost everything. He became a shepherd. It's like the lowest possible rung you could have in society at that time. He lost everything. Why? Why? Well, here's why. Moses, God wanted Moses to become a shepherd so that he could learn to shepherd his people, Israel. God let Moses lose everything so that all Moses would have to his name was a stick. And then God would use that stick to bring himself very much glory and to save many people. So let me ask you that question. What's in your hand? A laptop, a guitar, a hammer, a kid, a child, a telephone, whatever it is. I want to tell you what. If, even if you all you got is a stick, God will use that. Just surrender it to Him. Whatever is in your hand, use it for God's purposes and for God's glory. And the, just understand that the providential God has put it there. He has put you here for such a time as this. Amen? Let's stand. Lord God, we thank you that you are above all things. Lord, thank you that you rule over history, you rule over circumstances, Lord, you rule over our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust you like Joseph. And even when we don't see the big picture of all that's going on, Lord, that we would trust in your providence, that we would trust in your character, that you're good, that you love us, and that you're faithful. And Lord, thank you that our life is not just about us. What a shallow life that would be. Lord, thank you that our life is about you. Lord, we were made by you, and we were made for you, by your purpose and for your purpose. And Lord, help us to live that way. Lord, take whatever's in our hands. Let it be surrendered to you. Lord, anyone who's not who's here today who does not yet know you as their personal Lord and Savior, Lord, do that work in your heart, in their hearts, and draw them to yourself, that they might be born again into new life and true life. We pray that in Jesus' name.